Hello. Hi, John. Hi, Melrin. Hi, John. How's it going? Good. How are you? Good. I'm diddling a little bit with some new audio, and you're my first victim. <laughs> beep, boop, beep, 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 oh, beep. yeah. This could get real weird. I don't uh, know. What's happening? What's happening there? Oh, I'm trying a new interface to my computer. Tell me about it. Tell me more about it. No, I don't want to get too far into it. it. Is it an A to D converter? Uh, No, it's DDD all the way down, just like Brothers in Arms. Uh God, I'm loud. Am I loud to you? Uh, No, because I turned you down. Okay. All right. Well, I'm not peeking. I got the limiter dip switch. I hit the limiter dip switch. I'm always peeking here, and I don't understand why. I've got this little audio interface that has Mm -hmm. little, little meters on it. And every time I look down... It looks right, <clears throat> and then I look away, and I look back, and I've and I've had a peak. I've 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 uh, I've got some I've got red, and I'm and I was like I'm talking right now. I'm talking. This is as loud as I get. I'm not peeking. Yeah. No, I'm like a monkey so, with a slide rule. Uh, la la la. I got this thing, and I, I got my uh, my 23 band meter dingus that tells me how I'm doing. And uh, 23 bands? Well, not bands. It's I like got like a Nakamichi stereo. <laughs> <laughs> It's pretty sweet. Anyways, it's the most wonderful time. Are you having a good week? Uh, sure you it's, are. It's, <laughs> it's Monday at 10 o'clock in the morning. How bad could it get? It can't be that bad. It can't be that bad. Oh, man. I, I did an unusual thing. What? Tell me. Well, you know, it was some kind of podcast conference here in town. Yes. Is that the PodCon? PodCon. PodCon. Uh, <laughs> did, you, did you go to PodCon? PodCon. Uh, and uh, it was put on by, I think, Hank Green and his brother, uh, Frank Green. He's from the internet. From the internet. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and the, uh, the, the McElroy brothers. The McElroys. Lol. Lol. And no one called me. I almost I spit out my beverage. I, I know. Nobody right? called you. Nobody called me. Now what? Now some some fans called me. Some people that were coming through town that were like, "I'm coming to the podcast con." Oh, and, you got uh, you got it coming at you both ways. People unempowered to have you up on the stage. They're saying, "Hey, hmm. where's John Roderick?" That's right. I had a, I had a local journalist who said, "Hey, can you uh, can you know uh, can you introduce me to the McElroys?" Mm-hmm. Oh, I'm going to get so many letters. Mm-hmm. From the from the McElroys, first and foremost, but um, they uh, and I was like, "Look, man, I don't think I, I don't. I think I think they. I don't think they communicate anymore. I think I think they've had it." Hmm. Well, so apparently, like they mentioned me from the stage at their show. Didn't. They always they always thank you at the end of their. I don't listen to their show, but uh, they always thank you at the end of every episode, and they say yeah. where where to get a copy of uh, of your album. It's wonderful that they do that, but mm-hmm. no one invited me to the podcon that's happening in my own town. And it's so, like having a podcast about the Wicked Witch, and nobody has the witch come. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> Should say you're uh, flying monkeys. So all uh, so, but the thing is, you know, when you ask me like, "How's my week going?" Mm-hmm. All that was last week. Yeah. That ended last night. This is a brand <sighs> new week. Today is a. This is all new. Yeah, that's true. That's true. But I had a friend in town who was here to see the con, and I just got up early, A, Mm -hmm. and went out of the house, B, to uh, meet her for coffee. You're kidding me. Before the show. Hang on. On this, you sure? You sure you didn't get your clock wrong? On this very day where you record with me at 10 a.m. Pacific time, you were already up and you've already been out of the house and talked to somebody with clothes? I got up. 
I started the truck and let it warm up. I got out with a glove and wiped the frost off the windows, drove to Randy's, Hmm. had a chicken fried steak and eggs. Oh, my God. And then back in the saddle at 10.03. Oh. You you ate a chicken fried steak this morning and you're still awake? I already, I'm just, and I'm going to a radio appearance after our show, and then I'm going to my psychiatrist. Whoa. And then after that, I think I'm going to dinner, like fancy dinner somewhere. You're doing all these things in one day? In one single day. I'm making up for all the other days where I never do anything. Oh, it's a catch-up day. Well, but they say you can't catch up. Oh, man, I've written down chicken fried steak because I need to talk to you about food and sleep. Oh, my okay. God. I'm so proud of you. What a day. And and you, then you know what? The... You shook it off. You shook it off. Even though the McElroys <laughs> and the Greenses did not invite you to their con, you, you shook <laughs> it off and you got, you got right back in the fray. Got back on That's the right. horse. That's right. That's <laughs> right. Boots <laughs> on the ground. <clears throat> and on the, on the way home, I started singing, as you sometimes do, I started singing In the Air Tonight, Phil <laughs> Collins's <laughs> first solo hit it's magnum opus in many ways and you know of course i was having the regular thoughts that you have about it like what an unusual single Mm -hmm. what a what an extraordinary choice to have as a first single who would have thought yeah that this weird song and then i did the thing that i very seldom do which is i said you know even though today is not like phil collins day Mm -hmm. i I'm going to spend just like two minutes while I'm sitting at this traffic light to get a little bit more familiar with In the Air Tonight, a song that I feel like I know like at, like as well as my own shirt. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we've, I did we've it, lived in that song for a long time now. Oh, for years, right? Yeah. Up and down mm-hmm. with, with In the Air Tonight. <clears throat> and I went and I looked at the lyrics because I was assuming... Uh, because in all the years that we've been listening to the song, you there's so much story in it. Mm-hmm. And I was assuming that there were some lyrics that I that I didn't know. There was some third verse that I'd never really looked at that was going to that when I read those lyrics, I was just going to be like, wow, gobsmacked. Or I was going to be disappointed. Mm hmm. So I'm sitting at the stoplight. I look up in the air tonight lyrics and I read them and I realize, oh, I know them all. Yeah. There may be less than you even thought. (laughs) Yeah. Mm -hmm. I know the lyrics. There's only two verses Mm -hmm. and we could all sing it all the way through right now. Yeah. And, and even more of an accomplishment that there's, there's nothing in the lyrics. (laughs) You know, we all think like, Oh, that he must have witnessed a murder. Oh, all this yeah. stuff. Yeah, the story like, went around for years that I think has since been. Uh, don't email me. Uh, the story <laughs> went around for a long time that it was about uh, actually literally watching somebody drown. Yeah, right. Like mm-hmm. watching watching Sting kill his first wife or something. Oh my god! In three quarter time. Yeah, please do not re- write don't me about that. that. No. Um, but it turns out it could. You know, the language is broad enough. Mm-hmm. He could just be mad at his next door neighbor. This could just be an argument he's having with his sister. Like, if I saw you drowning, I wouldn't even lend a hand. Me. That's that's the meanest thing in it. <laughs> the rest of it is just like, you know what you did. You know, mm-hmm. you know. Wipe it's off like, that grin. Yeah, there's, there's <laughs> the only the only reason that it is 
I mean, we just, we add all that menace to it. And I think it's in his voice. I think the character of the his voice. The atmospherics of the, uh, yeah. the production, don't you think? Yeah, the atmospherics, right. It's the sound of, of foreboding. But, uh, but anyway, so I just came away from that experience. I, it's not like I've heard the song. I, it's not like it was on the radio. Nothing inspired me to do this. Hmm. I just, this is I was really out, out of nowhere. Steak. Yeah, I, huh. I just had some chicken fried steak and I was like, I saw you were drowning or whatever. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, oh, I'd like to hear you cover that. That'd be all right. But see, that's that's also what it's it's it's, it's in, in line with a lot of songs that are hard to do at karaoke. Uh, mm-hmm. I think we talked about this before, but there's there's famous karaoke songs where you think you really think you know the song. You probably shouldn't do that song because you don't actually you you remember the feel of it, but you don't really remember where the stops and starts are. And yeah. this one, you know what I'm saying? With, with this one, there's a lot of air in, in this tonight. You know what I'm saying? The song, yeah. the song has a lot of space to it and atmospherics. And, you know, it's from the time around the time that Peter Gabriel was doing similar production to great success. If you think yes. about the first three Peter Gabriel albums, like they had a real feel to them. They were very... No symbols. No symbols. Hmm. Hmm. Is that true? You know that story? He took the symbols away. Took the symbols away. <clears throat> he said, you got to play the drums. Drummers hate sim- that. Drummers love their symbols. Well, and I think he was the first one to ever do it. Yeah. I think drummers hate it. I think what drummers hate is Peter Gabriel. Well, they're a lot like dogs. You know, 90 minutes, they'll forget everything anyway. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Um, uh, was it Hugh Padham? Is that the guy who did, who did uh, In the Air Tonight? Who did, uh, what is that, uh, Face Value? Face Value. Phil. Face dances tonight. Face, Face dances, dances tonight. Take All right. chances. It's good. It's good. It's good. Uh, I was just 24 years old. <laughs> uh, who produced this? Hugh Padham. Padham. Now, now, was he also the guy? Was he also Peter Gabriel man? I think he was. Uh, this is uh, this is stuff that if I were reading a um, uh, copy of Tape Op magazine, mm-hmm. I would be like right in there, right in the thick of it, throwing elbows. Mm-hmm. He got him. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, sitting here, you know, sitting here just on my hard stool, mm-hmm. a little toadstool. I'm just like do 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 do. Dude, Peter Gabriel's first album was produced by Bob Ezrin. Bob Ezrin, get over that shit right now. Come on, get out of Dodge. So I kind of want. I'm pretty happy with that Salisbury Hill business. Let's 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 get the guy from Kiss. Wasn't it Bob Ezrin? Uh, see again, like uh, see, like if you this were, if you like were a, reading tape op, you'd be throwing elbows right now. This feels like a tape op uh, article that we should write. Sorry, it's all. Right. I took you away. I took you out of your experience. You've had an amazing morning, capping off a really turbulent week. And I'm sitting here talking to you about English producers. Shame on me. Well, it's not shame on you. It's not a situation like that. If we, if no. you had pivoted, if you had pivoted to the fix, mm. if you wanted to talk about the fix, yeah, um, that's too hard of a turn. You feel? No, no. I feel like I would have made the turn to the fix. I couldn't make the turn to kiss. Mm. Oh you no, no, no! I just meant the Bob. I meant, no, no. I meant the Bob Ezrin part. Is all. Is all. And now yeah. you got Steve Lillywhite. He says he wouldn't work with the band more than twice. But in the case of you two, he made an exception for War. I feel like I want. And want to be a record producer? Oh yeah, I really do. And I don't. And 
when I listen to other people's production on albums, even ones that I love, even where I love the production, as as in my evolution as a musician, right? When you're young and you're just listening to music as a listener, you don't really hear production. It's not a thing you're conscious of. You only notice the stuff you're not supposed to notice. Yeah, like right. you might say, oh, there's a lot of reverb on there, but you don't notice the subtleties of what's co- covering the musical spectrum. Yeah, you can't hear you can't hear the work of a producer. And then we all have, I think, the same experience, which is mo- most of us that are that didn't come up during a hip hop era, who came up during a guitar pop era. Um, our first awareness of production comes when we learn about George Martin, mm-hmm. and you go, "Why the hell are the Beatles so good?" And it's mm. like, "Oh well." The production. <laughs> and then you get schooled on it. And then you start hearing the production on a lot of things, like on Bohemian Rhapsody. And you start hearing the production on... And then as you, if you're a rock person, you start hearing these stories. Oh, John Bonham wouldn't let him put the, the microphones close to the drums. And oh, you know. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, during the making of, of, uh, of those Pink Floyd albums, uh, you know, they, they... Roger Waters was an asshole. Well, and it's all like tape loops that uh, Alan Parsons came up with. It, blah, oh, blah, blah. like you get the uh, yeah, right or like and the camera pan the pan slowly. And gorgeous Dave Gilmore. God, that guy was handsome. He's so wonderful. I I did a deep dive on Gilmore the other day, but I don't forget. Sorry, sorry, pivot too hard. Sorry. And then then you hear the story about when they were making rumors and they lifted up the tape and they could see through it because they had done so many cocaine off of it. <laughs> but then you get into making records like I did, and now you're confronted with production as a very real thing that you're like you're learning and deeply engaged in where you're like, well, wait a minute, do we like <clears throat> I had some profound production moments in the early Long Winters records because I was collaborating with Chris Walla and Chris had a very strong idea. And, and? <laughs> Come on. <laughs> and Ken Stringfellow. No, what did and? you mean? Oh, oh and Sean God, Nelson. Jesus. I'm sorry. And Sean Nelson. Oh, my God. That was so close. And Did you hear Nelson. about that? <laughs> no, no, he's not. It's not like he listens to the podcast. Well. Uh, but, but I can think back to a couple of key moments in the, in the production of that first record where a production choice determined not only the sound of the album, but the sound of the band thenceforth. Wow. When I think back on those moments, I think back on them as turning points. And in at least one case, I wish I'd gone the other direction. I'm so, I'm so curious. Okay. So it's a song. Is it, is it a particular song from the first album? It was a sound. Okay. It was a sound that we got. And it was um, in getting this sound, and I'll tell you what the sound was. Mm-hmm. Uh, the sound was uh, the sound of my Juno 106 Roland synthesizer, which is a, a synthesizer that has a lot of, you can manipulate a lot of parameters. You can make it sound like a lot of things. Mm-hmm. Uh, but primarily, you make it sound like a like variations on a synthesizer. They're good at that. They're really good. It sounds very like a synthesizer, mm-hmm. no matter what you do it. <clears throat> and then we ran the synthesizer into uh, 
a big muff mm-hmm. distortion, a big muff fuzz pedal. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it created this this wall, this extremely pleasing, fat wall of thick fuzziness, like mm-hmm. a giant, like a giant love caterpillar came into the room and wrapped me in its 5,000 little mm. stubby green arms. And it was like, uh, it was a, a turning point, an in-studio turning point where here was this sound, which was... Is this like a, maybe like a Copernicus? It was, it was happening in the process of, of that, exactly that. That the we were experimenting with a song that did not have a band arrangement. Copernicus was this tune that because some of this stuff, just for for background, it's worth I think it's worth mentioning that some of these had been Western uh, state hurricane Western state hurricane songs that you had uh, really if you changed up quite a lot. I mean, it's it's really amazing to think about how many times you played car parts that one way and then made it into this pop song. You had re- reinvented some hurricane songs, and then there was new stuff starting from scratch. Yeah, trying to reinvent stuff and and going from a band that was uh, that was like pretty post grunge hard rock. You know, the Western State Hurricanes had big amplifiers, and we were a loud band. And we were in the studio, and we were making this music that was indie, proto, proto indie rock. Maybe not proto, but we were certainly in the in the new quiet as the new loud school, and I I failed to be quiet in the new loud, <laughs> but that was certainly a, that was the that was the new aesthetic, and I hit, and so Copernicus used to be a big rock song, and we, and it wasn't we the only reason we were even doing it is that we didn't have enough songs to make a whole album. And I was like, well, what about Copernicus? And I sat down at the at a piano. And I had never played it on the piano before and just sort of tinkering, right? And in the process of trying stuff out, hit upon this sound. And it's not it's not like a uh, it's not like we were the first person people to ever run a synthesizer into a big buff, right? It's a it's a it's fairly common thing to try. But it it was a sound that I heard in my in my soul because what it sounded like was a really big fat guitar, but that had no strumming. It was just, you could play chords, you could make all the transitions, but there wasn't any rhythmic Hmm. aspect to the chords. It's not like down, 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 down. It was just, Mm and you could put that in, and have guitars on it and bass on it and have rhythmic things. And underneath it, there would be this, like, not just a low tone, but this, like, kind of just wall, this wall of of what communicated to me, like, the biggest, rockest sound. And I, I'm sitting in the studio, and we're putting this down, and my eyes are just as wide as saucers Hmm. and I'm like 
reinventing everything in my mind. And we, you know, we're not, this isn't like during mixing, but, but we're kind of far along in the recording. And, and I'm basically saying, I want this on everything. <laughs> okay. Like I want to like go. You made, you made uh, like uh, pesto for the first time, and now everything gets pesto. Yeah, but but it is, it is the sound, right? I mean, if you when they were making my bloody Valentine's Loveless, he took his jazz master and he ran it in probably to a big muff and he went and he was like that's the sound and he put it on everything that 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 whammy bar thing kind of helps to find that sound i think of it that way for sure yeah for sure i mean if you if you read interviews with him at the time he's like we didn't use any synthesizers on this it's very simple actually it sounds amazing to you but you're not thinking straight because it's just like basically two or three tracks of guitar it, it it's not this crazy thing. The more, the you, more you listen here, to it, the less you feel like you understand what's going on. <laughs> and it's, and it's, it's such just, a good album. It's so good, but it, but but it's it's an example, and there are there are hundreds of examples of bands who just like the Strokes hit upon that vocal sound mm-hmm. and right. it made that record. And so, anyway, I came into the studio the next day. And the, the, the track that we were, the, the track that this went down on was not Copernicus, although Copernicus was where it belonged. Oh, what am I thinking of? Boom. What's the one with the Dr. Dre on it? The boom, boom, boom. What song am I thinking of? That's um, uh, Unsalted Butter. Right. Right. Uh, no, it was Mimi. Really? That, that this happened on the first time. And, you know, Mimi is a very thick production. There's a lot going on in that production. But and the thing is, I'm I, I didn't hear this keyboard part being the loudest thing in the mix. Just that it existed. That mm-hmm. it was this like that the chords had this additional fatness that would have been a sound, like a unifying sound on an album, and it would have been a unifying sound of a band, whether or not. Um, you know, uh, like whether or not that sound would have appealed to people more than the sound that we went with, I have no idea, and I don't. It's not a thing that um, that it's worth speculating about. But at the time, I was like production because there wasn't a band. The Long Winters weren't a band. It wasn't like we were coming in and trying to capture our sound. It was like I was in a the rare position of being able to say this is the sound of, of a new band. And I came in the next day <clears throat> and was like, let's, uh, you know, let's call that up. And Chris said, yeah, I wa- I tried to like make that work and I couldn't really make it work. So, I recorded over it. Oh, no. Oh. Oh, that's aggressive for a Bellinghammer. Well, I mean, that was his, and and that was, you know, it it was within a 10-minute period that I had Shit. this, like, production. 
And then on the flip side of it, like production, because he perceived himself to be the producer and that wasn't where, that wasn't the direction he heard it going. And we had an argument about it, but it was, but he had erased it. It wasn't like, were, you, were really... the other tracks down at this point? Oh, everything was, I mean, was we it... were, we were far enough along in the making of the record that this would have been a, this would have been a change of direction. And, and when you are in a situation like that, where you feel like, oh, well, you know, we've got to get this done. Mm -hmm. we, we don't have the time to do this now. And you look at it from my perspective 15 years later and you go, you know, you had all the time in the world uh, to make those decisions. Like you have the, the famous adage, right? You don't have your whole life to make your first record. Right. You, you only have a year to make your second record. Right. Uh, and he didn't, you know, that wasn't the sound of production that he had in mind. And, um, and at that point in his career, he didn't see his job as being, um, facilitate the artist as much as his job was be a, uh, a guide to the artist or be, um, a, a, a collaborator, a, a co-author. Mm -hmm. So, Everything that followed from there, like the second record, I took a much greater hand in in making production decisions for better and for worse, because I was learning production and not always, you know, I, I at that point kind of needed a mentor. Anyway, like like a lot of things in music, as I learned more and more about production and as I heard it more and more then I couldn't listen to a record without hearing the production, hearing it in some cases a long time before I was listening to the song mm -hmm. until production was, um, uh, the, the, my primary path into music. And I think I arrived at a place where if the production is, if the production doesn't grab me right away, I don't want to hear the production. Hmm. Now, you know, like if, if, um, like I, I, I keep going back to this band always from Canada who I think have great production and the new Portugal, the man song I think has great production and I want to listen and, you know, Beck records have great production. I want to listen to the production on those things, mm -hmm. but like, like bad production, I, it's like listening to a bad podcast. I just get, I, you know, my shoulders hunch up. I get that like lemon, just sucked on a lemon face. And I just have to, I just have to get out of it. I don't want to, I don't want to hear it. Without, hear without, it. without naming names, what do you think of when you think of what you're calling bad production? What, what is a hallmark of what you consider bad production? Well, apart any, from how it makes you feel. Anything with vocoder on it. Oh, or like autotune. Anything with anything with with I mean vocoder in particular even more than auto tune um, is an effect that is now I mean it's considered almost like de rigueur uh, if you're if you're making a kind of record absolutely I mean really? that Con huh. that Kanye record that came out uh, yeah I, uh, yeah I think he works it sometimes 
Well, yeah, but it was uh, it was superfluous to need. Uh, uh, as he used it on this most recent record, and the thing is, it's no, it no longer. I understand that to us, to um, listeners within the auto tune slash vocoder genre, it is as necessary to the sound of the music as distorted guitars are to metal. It's just the sound. It is the sound of it. Um, but I just find it like so dull witted just dull-witted um, as a sound. And when I hear it, I just go, I just, I'm just, I'm out, uh-huh. you know? Uh-huh. Um, and, you know, the same is true of like super, super gloss on stuff uh, that, I mean, and this isn't just coming from a lo-fi perspective, but where the, where everything has been glossed to the point where there's no, it's not even conceivable that there would be imperfection in it. Mm-hmm. And I think you probably have that same feeling like super gloss just puts me out on the sidewalk. It's, it's, it's weird. Cause I, I'm, I'm somewhat out of the vernacular on a lot of stuff. I mean, I'll know, like I'll recognize something as part of this like two to three year long trend. You know, um, but it's sometimes something comes along that is is very new and you really notice it. I mean, for vocoder, you go back to, let's say, you know, Zapp and Roger or something where like they they've or I guess Peter Frampton before that. But but Zapp and Roger turned into a little bit of an art form, maybe beat it Mm -hmm. to death. But like they did they did something, you know, more bounce to the ounce like that's that that is the sound of a vocoder to me is something like that. Um, And then eventually there will be people who reintroduce it. Like share, uh, yeah, which, which supposedly started as an accident. I think it did, and it's it sounds like an accident. But I think, do you believe in life after love? Was the thing that turned vocoder yes. from a thing of a, a memory of the distant past to a thing now that you can't you know you can't turn on the radio without hearing it. Right. It felt it felt very modern. But I'm thinking about. Um, well, I don't want to go too deep down a rabbit hole, but there's lots of stuff like that where you like, you'll just, but sometimes somebody is able to take something that seems like it's been pretty tired and mix it up. But, but it's, it is that there is this sense to me of like, even in a genre that I'm not super familiar with, and this is probably just cause I'm an old man, I will tend to tune out rather quickly if it sounds like pretty much all the other stuff I've heard. Mm-hmm. But like, for example, like I'm not the biggest Bonnie Vare fan in the world. Like, I like his stuff, okay. But he was on uh, the <laughs> recently renamed Chris Thiele show last night. Oh, oh, and oh. Um, boy, the thing he did was weird. I mm-hmm. I don't know what he was doing. He did the song. <laughs> I don't know. He's doing this lead speak for all the titles of his songs, but it's something something forty five is the name of this song. I don't know what in the hell instrument or instruments he's playing. But unless he had brought with him like some exquisitely talented string and winds group, I think it must have been. I, I need to find out what instrument he's playing on this because I don't think it's live instruments. It could have been. It was so tight. It was unbelievable. But it was weird. And it was ghostly, and it made me really perk up. And I, I, I sat and I put down what I was doing, and I, I listened to the song like a gentleman. And in something like that, you realize that that however he accomplished that. It worked like th- so. He did something really differently, and it really caught me. And it, it didn't hurt that the song was also, you know, uh, it had a really great feel to it. So I, I don't know. I mean, I still think there's so much room for something to really catch your ear and spark 
your feeling that that oogly feeling in your gut of like oh this is exciting and new and i'm really glad that somebody went there with this you know that 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 most recent bony bear record which is called 22 um, comma a million yeah okay, kind of that's like the one. Yeah. kind of like portugal have you heard period this album? the man i have and okay. i and it's an example of a record that i sat with utterly fascinated by the production and um to the point that I was yelling at the speakers about it because um, because listening to it, there are astonishing choices being made. And you could feel the choices, or at least I could feel the choices being made as they went down. And, and I had that experience of being like, yes, yes. <laughs> And then, you know, just like doing that, that incredible thing that you want from an artist, which is making a choice that both is incredibly gratifying in a way where it feels like obvious slash almost pandering to my basest needs, mm -hmm. but also completely surprising and not at all what I, and, and it doesn't feel trite. You know, just like, wow, mm -hmm. awesome. Like, that was it. You, yes. And, and then, then can I toss one thing in? In this age where all, so much of our media, especially movies, but in many cases, music is so, if you really, I hate to be a karma suck, but if you really, really keep scratching at the surface, you realize how much stuff is based on nostalgia or how much stuff is based on not just a reboot, but on like repackaging something really familiar. And I, I felt kind of, kind of unmoored listening to that song. Like, I'm not sure what this thing is, but it's like listening to Eno back in the day or something. We were like, what, what planet is this from? Well, and, and so there's a, there's a keyboard. The first time I saw it, uh, Jonathan Colton had it. And then I started to see it in the hands of a lot of musicians that I respected. And it was, um, it was a thing that people were just pulling out of their bag, right? We'd be sitting around and out, out would come this little keyboard and it's smaller than, uh, than an SK seven. Um, it's, um, this tiny little thing. It's like, it's longer than a paperback book, but thinner than a paperback book. Hmm. And it's, and it's, a, and it's beautiful. It's made out of like brushed aluminum and it's um, it's uh, it's like a it's just machined so beautifully, and it's called a it's called the OP one. Okay. Um, oh wow! And it's a it's a little just a little synth that's made in Stockholm. Um, God, this thing is gorgeous. It's gorgeous. And it is a synth and it's a sequencer and it like it does all these fun things that are um Hang on. I'm 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 looking up I said I said SK7 but what I meant was SK1. Like a Casio. The little Casio. Yeah, yeah, yeah I know what but, you mean. But this is teenage the, if you want to google this is teenage engineering OP-1. And so this is a thing. And, it's got, and it's when, almost, it's, it looks, it looks it's like it would be difficult to tell. If this were a prop in a movie, it would be hard to know what decade it's from. Apart from, yeah. you know what I mean? It's, it's got a timeless kind of wackadoo digital quality to it. It does. And it's, you know, it's very gratifying to have in your hands. Like when you press down the keys, they feel, um, 
really satisfyingly kind of solid. Hmm. It's it's a small enough thing. I would, that not, I would like, not have guessed that from looking at this. It looks like just little like like little like the pads on like a cheap laptop. No, it's not cheap at all. It's it just clicky? Fe- it's clicky and it's wow. chunky and it just fe- and it, the, and considering how small it is that if it, it fits in a it fits in your like um, your messenger bag. It is surprisingly heavy, like it's milled. There's no plastic on it. Like dense. It's dense, um, and it's not big, so you could. It's not like you could sit and like play the grand piano on it. Mm-hmm. But within it, it has its own. It has all this processing power. I can. You can loop. You, there's drums in it. You can. Uh, you can kind of make all kinds of music out of it. And Colton pulled it out of his bag and I was like, whoa, what's that? And he was like, check it out. And he's, you know, Mr. Gizmo. And so he has... He, <laughs> Fancy pants. <laughs> he'll, he'll get these things and he'll play them for a while and then they'll kind of, you know, they end up on his on his uh, Gizmo wall. And he uses them for sure. But like, you know, if you've ever seen him on tour, right, he pulls out something that that's why I say that, fancy pants. Whatever that yeah, crazy exactly, thing yeah. is that he plays for fancy <laughs> pants. And that thing, that thing was a that thing was a piece of joke comedy equipment that he turned into. <laughs> well, like ultimate ultra ultra joke comedy thing. Anyway, so but he looks uh, like he really knows what he's doing with it. He does. It he looks does. like he would. I mean, I have to say, like I am not much of a musician, but watching him play that, it looks like there's a million ways that thing could go horribly wrong. <laughs> yeah, I mean, he's a fucking he's a genius. There's no argument. Yeah, it's true. Anyway, so I started seeing this OP-1 get pulled out of bags backstage all the time. You know, it's the type of thing that Matthew Cause suddenly had one. And, and, um, and the, the, the problem is it's a thousand bucks. And so it was the type of thing that when I first saw it, I felt like I got to get one of those. But then it was a thousand bucks, which is not cheap. And the thing about an SK-1 was that it was it was cheap. It was cheap when it was new. And, I mean, I used to find them at thrift stores for, for 5 to $10. This is 1000 bucks, And it's absolutely worth it. It feels worth it. But it turned out that almost everything on that record, 22 comma a million, were either made with or run through an OP-1. Wow. That is super interesting. That little fucking gizmo, it, he and this is you know Boney Vare's whole trip, right? He made that first record out in his dad's cabin on a on a tape machine made out of a beer bottle and a raccoon tail. <laughs> and and you go like, well done, like dude, mm-hmm. well done, like creative guy. Uh, and when this record came out, part of the part of w- my experience of listening to it the first couple times was like, oh, well, now you're uh, now you're Mr. Got all the money in the world. Mm-hmm. And so you're just like, you know, you got a fair light. <laughs> yeah, right. You're making you're making like a billion dollar record in a studio. You're probably like every day somebody brings in a giant tray of chopped crapola that nobody eats and then he's, he's probably on the, the dark du- twisted fantasy island he's out there and people are just hanging out on the couch for like just months making the album right right but in fact it's him with this fucking little thing and and what i was yelling at about the production is that that it was the best kind of yelling at the radio for me now 
which is that I could feel myself in that chair. I could feel myself as the producer of that record. And I heard choices that I disagreed with. And, you know, and the thing is, they're tiny. It's just like, no, 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 no. Don't you put the effect on it the first time, then leave it off the second time. And when it came back, you could feel it coming back around. And I mm-hmm. was like, you're going to have that effect on it. And that's the wrong choice. And it came back around and it did have the effect on it. And I was like, no. And it, and I felt it every time it went by. And I mean, this is like interacting with a, with a, with a brilliantly produced thing and interacting with it, not as a, like a passive listener, not as somebody that's like, how is this? Wow. What's going, but somebody that where I was sitting there, like, I know, I know you agonized over whether or not to do that. And in the end you chose to do it. And if I were there, I would have argued against it. Mm -hmm. And that kind of like, uh, that kind of relationship to production is like it is like when you become a musician and you first hear the bass line in God Only Knows, mm-hmm. and you're like, well, now I can't ever hear it without hearing the. I can never hear it without hearing um, that whatever that triangle because I'm because having become conscious of it, you can't ever put it back in the box. I want to be a producer. Hmm. Because I, because it's an art that I really identify with. Like I really, I want, I don't want to be a producer that is like, oh, I don't, I didn't hear that sound. So I just erased it. I want to be a producer that's like, what, you know, like, what do you want? And let's find it. Mm -hmm. But then, but then advocating for that kind of thing. Like what if on the second one, we didn't do it? What if we didn't go back? Right. But so way, uh, way, way beyond an engineer, but not at the point where you're just like a name that gets slapped on it, but you're somebody who could say like, here's, here's a palette of things that might complement what you've told me you're trying to do. Like, I don't want to be an engineer at all. Mm-hmm. That, that aspect of it, I know enough about to, to say like, here's what I'm hearing. I want to side chain, this so that it only triggers the reverb when it goes above this and the engineer knows what I'm talking about. Mm-hmm, or, I mean, mm-hmm. you know, I, I want to be able to know the technology enough to be able to say, here's what I want. And here's what I mean. Well, almost as a director is to a DP or cinematographer, like you're able yeah. to say, like you go do your thing to go make it make look like this. It's the same. You yeah. know how to do it. And then you can describe it in the terms that, right. I mean, that's, yeah. but yeah, you got people for that. Right. And but not at all like the slap your name on a thing. Like I want to be in the trenches with, with artists making music because the, because it's really hard to do for yourself. Mm-hmm. It's really hard to be the writer, director, star, and you know, and like producer of your own film. Mm-hmm. Um, even if you're the writer, director, star, there's a producer, generally, and. And but breaking into that because there have been a, there have been quite a few uh, artists who have considered me as the producer. Uh, I don't mean that they that they for, call so, me their producer, right? But like, yeah, you're, hey, we're in the running for the role, right? I was mm-hmm. in the running to make the record, and in and I've only ever recorded, I've only ever produced three albums that weren't connected to me. One of them was the most popular one was Shelby Earle's debut record. 
Um, and I'm super proud of Shelby Earle's debut record, Burn the Boats. Uh, and I produced a record for a guy named Eric Hawk, who is currently the guitar player in Portugal, the man. And he's a very mercurial guy, and he never released it. Oh, man. It's a brilliant record. Uh, and but by which I mean he is a great player and his songs are great, but he had he had some um, he had whatever insecurity about it and then he kind of feels like oh well we made that ten years ago and it's not really relevant anymore and it's like it's a great record it would huh. all, it's always relevant and then I produced a record for my niece Elizabeth Roderick that huh. I'm also super proud of wow, but i, didn't know I that. think That's cool. i imagine it's probably hard to find but you know i was in the running to produce kathleen edwards's record and then kathleen edwards started dating bon Iver. Mm-hmm. and the record label was like well we could pay to have this record made by john roderick <laughs> or we could have it made by bon Iver, who is at the at, at who was at that moment like uh, number one on the charts with a bullet. And so I missed out on on producing that record, and I had a lot of angry things to yell at the speakers mm. listening to it because he made a lot of choices uh, for her music that I wouldn't have... I mean, that felt to me like obvious at the time. Like, yeah, she's a female singer-songwriter with an acoustic guitar. Sure. So you made Yankee Hotel Foxtrot. Um, but that's not what, I don't think it's what the album wanted. No, I don't think that's what the songs wanted. I don't think that's what she wanted in her life at the time. Mm. And, um, but you know, that was very hard for her to say. Sure. Because shit, Bon Iver is producing your record. And, oh, also, you know, like you're in a relationship with Mm -hmm. him. It's very hard to be like, you know, I kind of. We were half, because, you know, she and I had been talking production. We were not halfway along, but it was like, I wanted to make I wanted to make that record sound like the first Pretenders record. I don't want to just hang out with her. She's amazing. I like her. I only spent that little bit of time at your house with her, but boy, I like that person. She has a lot of of deep calm. Yeah, but she's she's fast and funny. My God, she's, she's fast and funny. She is. Mm. She's 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 dynamite. And she posted a thing on Instagram yesterday, which was um, she was out walking in the forest behind her house in Ontario. And uh, she found, like, a giant jackrabbit, dead jackrabbit hanging from a tree. Not hanging, like, by its neck, but just, like, draped over a branch. Oh, dear. That's not good for property values. And, and, then, she, and then she found, like, a dismembered coyote. Oh, come on. And she was like, what's going on what's out here? true detective thing? What's is happening? There, yeah, exactly. Is there, like, a Cthulhu? <laughs> um, a Canadian Cthulhu. <laughs> Sorry. So her, her life continues to be very interesting. Uh, it sounds like like you've been thinking about this this has been on your mind you're thinking is this something you're thinking you'd like to do well the problem is the life of a producer is not the life that i want i have a lot of friends that are that are producers that's the career they chose for themselves and i think it's very gratifying work for them but they never see the sun and they go from one completely encompassing project to the next so they work on something for three weeks where they're just in the studio with these musicians who are like frantically scrambling to try and get their vision down. And they, they shepherd this thing all the way from 
zero to a fully fledged thing. You have to be comfortable with, with the idea that like, we don't have all the time in the world that that's the take moving on, you know, all this stuff that's in some ways like anti-perfectionism. Mm -hmm. You make choices and you go, uh, and you come to the end and you have a finished product and it, you know, at the beginning of a record, it could be any one of a thousand things, but at the end of a record, it is what it is. Mm -hmm. And you can scrap it and go back and make that record again differently, but you probably aren't going to. You made it, right? That's the thing about the first long winner's record. At the end, it was what it was. And because it was a first record, it established the tone of the band going forward. Um, and I wouldn't want to do that all year long. I wouldn't want to make 12 records in a year. It would just be, it's just too, it would be overwhelming. But I would love to make a record every year. For, with, with somebody. With somebody. Mm -hmm, or two, mm -hmm. two records a year. Where it was like, yeah, I'm going to go. I mean, every time Death Cab goes in to make a new record, I'm always like, you should have me produce this one. <laughs> and they are... Are they, they still just, making records? Oh, yeah, they're making one right now. No kidding. Um, they are always making records. And, you know, their records continually evolve i don't think they understand how fantastic a job i would do mm -hmm. as the producer of their album more more the pity on that my goodness they should at least at least have you in i mean just that's ridiculous well it's not it's not a thing that could ever happen and when i mm. say it they there's like that there's that <laughs> laugh of like ha 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 and then a little bit of fear in the eyes that i'm serious yeah like me asking you if i can drive <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> this episode of Roderick on the Line is brought to you by Squarespace. You can learn more about Squarespace right now by visiting squarespace.com. Oh, friends, the many, many things that you can do with Squarespace. You can do what I'm doing right now. You could host a podcast on there. Isn't that crazy? But there's so much more. With Squarespace, you can create a beautiful website that can turn your cool idea into a whole new site for the world to see. You can showcase your work. You can create a blog or publish other kinds of text content. You can sell products and services of all kinds. You can promote your physical or online business. You can put up photos. You can make a gallery. You can announce an upcoming event. I do that with my uh, Ungainly X-Men meetup using Squarespace for all of that stuff. It does that and so much more. And Squarespace does this by giving you, oh, so much beautiful templates. Truly beautiful templates. They're always adding to these gorgeous templates created by world-class designers. You get powerful e-commerce functionality that lets you sell whatever you want online. Of course, you get the ability to customize the look and feel of your site, your settings, your products, all of that with just a few clicks. That is true. And everything is optimized for mobile right out of the box. That means your site is going to look great regardless of the device or dingus upon which it is being viewed. Squarespace also has a new way to buy domains, and you can choose from over 200 extensions. It's all in there. You get analytics that help you grow in real time. Built-in search engine optimization, free and secure hosting. Nothing to patch or upgrade. And of course, if you ever run into trouble, don't worry, because you get 24 by 7 award-winning customer support. You can go out and you can make it. Make it yourself. You can easily create a website by yourself. Get yourself and maybe even your friends and family out of the webmaster business. You got to get on this Squarespace. It's just the, it's a great place to go. So please go head over right now. You go to squarespace.com for a free trial. And when you're ready to launch, you use the offer code ROTL, R-O-T-L, just like it sounds, That'll save you 10% off your first purchase of a website or a domain. 
And as always, our thanks to Squarespace for supporting Roderick on the Line and all the great shows. <laughs> That's adorable, Merlin. Oh, great. <laughs> sure, buddy. Uh, <laughs> and you're, you're there like, no, seriously. No, I'm, no. Really, I'm a really good driver. No, seriously. Yeah. I mean, did, I mean, you have obviously strong feelings about it. Is that ever a thing that if somebody came to you and said like, hey, we want Merlin Mann to produce our album. Well, I'll, I'm, I'm no, but I'm thinking a lot about what you're saying, and it's. Um, I mean, I guess to me, it's difficult not to separate it from what I think of as being a film director. Um, and both both of those jobs. I mean, we can stick to just music, but in, in either case, like it really is an impossible task. You go into making a, an album or making a movie. I mean, you've got to be so crazy to go into that because it is it's it's impossible there's no way to get everything the way everybody wants there's always time limits there's always money limits and if there aren't time and money limits you still might make total shit it's like you but also the personality traits required to be a a good and talented producer are i, I don't know i marvel at people who can hit all, tick all the boxes. So you think of somebody who, um, on the one hand, really knows who they are. I know that sounds silly, but somebody who knows who they are, they know the edges of their humanity and like, okay, here's where I stop and the other people begin. Like really mm-hmm. understand, like, so I mean, like honestly, to, to be a, a truly mature, uh, shading into parental character, like a, like a super dad or a super mom, somebody who's really, really able to separate themselves from, from the process, from the people, from the product, from, you know, and, and, and then just the million skills you need inside of that or would benefit from inside of that, obviously having a great ear, uh, knowing what something wants to be rather than what it is right now, being able to help people articulate something they don't know they're even thinking right now, being able to, as I say, bring in um, a, a palette that isn't just a bunch of gimmicks and gizmos, but to be able to say like, well, you know, this is one thing we could try to do this um the ability to as you say keep things moving right like like you like you like you would say with guitar solos back in the day like we're not going to do this 40 this is not hound dog we're not going to do this 42 times Mm -hmm. so what's the right amount of time how do you know when you're pushing it too far do you want to do like a fincher and a cubic where you just keep doing this until the person wants to kill you or do you say you got three shots give me your best or something else because that's you know how that works i just feel like it's so difficult for me to even concentrate on one and a half things at a time. It's amazing to me that that person could be somebody who could, for example, feel comfortable talking to whoever owns Warner Brothers this week. Like To be able to talk to the people above you and sort of below you and beside you, keep everybody confident that this is on track. It's like a skill set that makes my mind swim. And I know you don't have to have all of those things. You could just be affordable and patient. But like to be really good at that requires a set of skills that represents almost everything I marvel at in a person. Yeah, it's a, it it is a set of skills that is, that is, I think a lot of people in the music world think it's a set of skills that can be learned because there's so much effort put into software, recording software, and um, recording gear of all kinds. There are so many boxes. There are so many instruction manuals. Mm-hmm. And the era of the home recordist produced thousands and thousands of people who could legitimately describe themselves as producers because they have produced albums um, on their Mac. And as they got, you know, they read the the data, they they tested things out, they tried, they listened to other records, they got really good drum sounds, they got really good sounds, 
ultimately they were making, they were engineering great records or at least not maybe great records, but they were, they were able to engineer competently. Even competent, and, well, yeah, even competent yeah. records. Yeah. Um, but the, there is like all art, a thing that cannot be learned that is feel and is emotion. And when you're talking to musicians about making a record or when you're shepherding that process, you're dealing with this in, incredible world of like the, these are, this is in some ways like a peak ego moment for people, but also the place where they're most vulnerable. Mm -hmm. The music is generally like coming from somewhere inside them that they are maybe not in, in contact with directly. Mm -hmm. That's why it's coming out as music. They're mm -hmm. using their, they're using their voices. They're using their bodies. Also dealing with, you're dealing with multiple people, multiple people and everybody's, whether they know it or not, maybe doesn't have, I was going to say agenda. That's not the right way to put it, but you know, you're expected to rise above, you're paid, you're compensated to rise above all of that on some level. You're empowered by somebody to be the project manager for this piece of art, which, at, which is a lot of responsibility. At a crucial level, yes. And at a crucial level, you need to be right down in the blood and guts of it with people. Mm -hmm. Because, you know, there, there are a million producers out there who have learned to do it on their Mac and they're sitting in the room and they're recording you and the singer go, does a take and goes, how was that? And the person on the other side goes, uh, it was good. How did it sound to you? Mm -hmm. And that is not. That's about as useful as when I say, what do you want for dinner? And they say, whatever you want. And I was like, well, yeah. no, I'm asking you because I don't want to have to decide this on my own. But you also have to be yeah. a great editor. Right. You also. So it's one thing. And I, I am not in any way trying to diminish what I'm calling engineering. The the um, the skills and the mechanics of spending years learning how to make sounds in a studio is amazing. And, and certainly, you know, that through the compressors, through the board, all through the entire stack, that is an entire skill set. But then to have mostly mastered that plus be able to say, uh let's leave out that second chorus or let's have the bass do this here. Or could we try it this way? Or why don't you go record this in the bathroom or like, or, or really just being able to say that song's not up to snuff or let's try that vocal one more time. Yeah, that's a very different skill from being able to make something that, that doesn't overdrive the speakers. Well, you know what I mean? To be able to go from competent to like, you're getting into this very hazy, cloudy world of like, it's very much value judgments. Well, let alone, um, let alone being able to go into the room, sit down with the singer and go, you know, you're singing this from, from a place that isn't like reading as completely believable because it feels like you're singing it from, um, from a space where you're examining the, you're examining the, the protagonist and what the song and the song is written in the language as though the protagonist truly believed his situation and not that he was being examined by someone smarter than him. So huh. you're the singer, you've written this song, it is in this person's voice, and now you're afraid to be that person in the studio, and you're thinking you're smarter than that person, and now you're, you're singing it with your tongue in your cheek, and it's not reading. Mm -hmm. And to be able to say that kind of thing to a singer, in a language, because different singers will be able to hear that differently 
And you need to know the language of the person you're talking to to mm-hmm. be able to say something like that to them where they go, right. And then to be able to say, one way that you can accomplish that is to stop having your voice coming from behind your eyeballs and start trying to make your voice come from between your nipples mm-hmm. and then walk away, you know, and and be able to connect the intellectual experience of like, you're not singing this truthfully and then be able to give them a physiological cue that sounds crazy to someone that isn't a singer and be like, you're putting the music behind your eyes and you need to put it from behind your ears. And you say that to a singer, you say that to a group of people and they're like, what? I mm-hmm. mean, that's like, sounds woo woo or it just sounds idiotic. But if you say it to a singer and they're in there in front of the microphone and they are like, oh shit, I was putting it behind my eyes. And then they put it behind their ears, which isn't a thing that they'd ever thought of before. And mm-hmm. it works, mm-hmm. you know, that stuff. So it's not like, so comparing that job to an engineer is like saying, well, this guy works on the, this guy is like a genius at making this race car motor run really great. So that means that he will probably also be a great team owner um, who's like, and also a great driving instructor. And recruiter of drivers who he has to persuade to be on his team. Yeah, they're just, it's like, it's utterly different. But the problem is that that guys who have taught themselves engineering on their Macs feel insulted by the, the suggestion that, that what they're doing isn't production. Because it is, and within you know within the hip hop world, if you just make beats, you're called a producer. Like that's actually the name of that job. Like it's like, oh, I'm the producer, and basically it's because the track is just somebody rhyming over what you built. <laughs> you're the eight oh eightist. Yeah, but it's just a it's just a track you made. You know, and you're probably not in that job sitting there working with the vocalist like about whether he's singing it from behind his eyes or not. And there are, (laughs) you know, like I'm sure that if you're working with Rick Rubin or you're working with Dr. Dre, they are involved at that level, but there's a lot of music that you can just tell. It's one of the things when you listen to stuff on the radio as a, as a casual listener, you're not often conscious of the fact that the problem you're having with the song, the reason you don't like it is that the singer isn't, isn't believable it within the music that they themselves wrote. And it's because they got divorced from, they got divorced from what they wrote at some point, which isn't hard to do. It's easy to get divorced. It's why I can't listen to modern country because I don't believe it. I don't believe any of it because of, because the, uh, the, that vocal style is so affected I don't even that. recognize it as country. I'm, I'm not trying to be one of those, like, I like Hank Williams, guys. But, like, when I hear things that are called country music, I'm like, wow, this, I realize things evolve, but this sounds so much more like hip-hop than country to me. It's, oh, really? It's, well, just in the sense that it's so, it is so affect, not affected in the way you would think, but it's just every single little edge has been shaved off of it, and it's auto-tuned and super shiny, and it sounds like one of those... Swedish producers like made a country album, but not really. Like when people keep talking about, oh, this is this is the album where Taylor Taylor Swift is is finally all off of country and, and gone totally pop. And I'm like, I don't know, man. She's been pretty pop for a while. 
Yeah, right. Well, and I think the difference is that there's not that like that weird drawl, a weird drawl that's that feels like San Francisco punk bands that sing in an English. But it's all in the music, not just in the affectation of the voice. Yeah, yeah, yeah. right. Which is just like, well, my dog's naked, and it's like, no, it's all so corny. Just just now. adding a pedal steel at the last minute does not make this a country song. I heard that on the radio the other day. I, or no, I guess I was in a store and some song came on. And from the way that this drum sounded, I was like, how long till the pedal steel? I was just counting it down. And then there it was, like, <laughs> and I'm like, you know, the pedal steel is an incredible instrument. I mean, it's incredible. It's got so much to say and, and so many different emotions. It's awesome. And if you put, if you run it into a distortion box, if you run it into a chorus pedal, if you run it into a delay pedal, it can do. It's like a, it's like a synthesizer. I mean, it can make so many tones, and it's so. Instead, it's like it's like the country music salt shaker. Just yeah, it's so criminally underused. It's just like. Like, oh, it's here it is. This is a high lonesome song. One more high lonesome. I mean, think about Turn up the, the high lonesome. <laughs> think about the the way just a lap steel is used within Hawaiian music. Mm-hmm. It creates all that spooky wind. It's the sound of Hawaiian music. And it's the same, it's the same instrument that's being used over here, you know. It's like, oh fuck, somebody should steal, like the great pedal steel players should all march out of Nashville and just go start, you know, they should just start working with with the uh, T-Pain. <laughs> and like just fucking do something else, man. Uh, yeah. Both both sides. Everybody do something else. We're going to we're going to flip it. Here, we're going to flip the switch. Mix it up a little bit. Yeah, all the all the beat producers go over to Nashville and all the pedal steel players head out to LA and to down to Atlanta. So Usually when you mention something on the show, it's something you've been thinking about for a while. I guess sometimes it could be something that's just coming out because it's occurring to you. Is this something you've been thinking about for a while? I mean, or, or, did, I you, did you just recently realize you've been thinking about this for a while? I don't think that I... I mean, I, I've been thinking about this ever since... Ever since the 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 fourth Long Winners record went off the went off the trail. Because in the making of the fourth Long Winners record, I was, I had evolved to the point where I I felt like I was doing pretty great production work, and that production work um, was such a separate job from my actual job of being the songwriter and the singer, and it was in some ways more interesting to me. And what ended up happening was I, I produced, uh, well, effectively an instrumental record. I never went in and did my vocals, and mm-hmm. partly it was that I had that the the job of the vocals I had fulfilled with um, melodic instruments. But the record sounded great, you know, um, and. And I couldn't wait to mix it. And it was just this like this frustrating thing that I needed to figure out, oh, God, I got to put vocals on this thing. And Mm -hmm. in the end, I never did. I never put vocals on it. That record just sits there um, unfinished. And 
the experience of of working on that production every day and and in conjunction with Eric Corson, who has become now a great producer in his own right and was a a great engineer even then. It felt like, oh, sh- you know, this is something I could do. This is like a, this is another thing I could do. Now, right now, the idea that in addition to having three unfinished records, four podcasts, a book deal that I haven't pursued, that what I also need to do is throw my hat in the ring as a record producer. <laughs> it just feels right. like yeah. what I need to do is is figure out a method of finishing things rather than uh, chase down another. Well, good for you. That's that's a that's a hell of an insight. Well, I mean, it is. I, I, it is. It's it's very much of an insight. I mean, that's that's very that's very practical. You know, I have this list that's 10 years old or 15 years old of all the things that I, I mean, I've been trying to finish that record for 10 years. I've been trying to finish that book for 20 years. Mm. And there was, Graduate from College was also on that list for uh, 20 years. I got to graduate from college. I got to finish that book. I got to finish that album. And every morning I would wake up and there was no, I never had a small list like Get your pants on, get some, make some toasts, get out of the house. You know, at the end of every day, I never had a list that I could, that I could look at and say, I checked everything off that list. Good job. At the end of every day, the only list I had was graduate from college, finish that book, finish that album. And so at the end of every day, all I ever looked at was a list that seemed real simple right? It only had three items on it. (laughs) And they were all items that, you know, it it wasn't like start writing that book. It was, you have 450 pages written, just finish it. Mm. As a retired productivity guru, I'll tell you, those are not easy (laughs) items. No, I know because I spent 15 years looking at that three item list and it was a drag. Mm Mm-hmm. To never be able to check a single thing off of a list. And I didn't I didn't understand the thought technology of like, make a stupid list of things and check them off and you'll feel good about yourself at the end of the day. Um, and also, I've never been able to complete a project by making small, manageable choices. Like, all you need to do today is go in and cross all the T's and dot all the I's. Or all mm-hmm. you need to do today is write 500 words. Or, you know, I've never been good at that. Well, so last year, 2016, I think, 2000, uh, December of 2015, I got that letter in the mail, an envelope from the University of Washington that's shaped like a diploma. Mm. Have I told you this? No. I got a, I got a diploma-shaped manila envelope <laughs> from the University of Washington. So far, so good? And I looked at it. And I was like, there's not that many things this could be. And I think it is my diploma. I think I have graduated from the university. Did it take you this long to open it? My God, I would have torn that open. Well, I've never opened it. Oh. 
I put it on the hmm. I put it on the bookshelf and it's still there. Wow. And I look at it maybe not every day, but it's right there. It's like uh, a Schrodinger's diploma. It is. It's mm-hmm. exactly right. Inside that envelope, I think is a diploma. I think if I went online, I could probably find out whether or not I had graduated, but mm-hmm. I don't I'm not interested in doing that either. Mm-mm. And as far as I know, until I open that envelope, it's not official. <laughs> is that how it works? I don't know. <laughs> Seems reasonable. Uh-huh. I've never seen a diploma. I don't even know what it would say. What I don't even know what it what, like. What do they look like even? Yeah. Is it going to say like graduated with honors? Is it going to say like barely eked by? Is it going to say spent 24 years in college? White ribbon. <laughs> White ribbon. <laughs> uh, well, I'll, I'll speak for the audience. Um, why do you suppose you haven't opened it? Because you want it, you want it to stay a cat that could be alive or dead. Uh, I don't know. I mean, I it might be that it might be that if I open it, then I will check one of those three uh, things off the list. I'll scratch one of those three things off the list, and it will uh, it will both make the other two things seem even like. even starker now there's only two things on the list Mm -hmm. (laughs) but also you know to carry around because it's not like i just it's not like i waited 15 years to graduate from college i've i've waited 30 years to graduate from college like i went into gonzaga university as a freshman in september of 1987 and that's 30 years ago. Uh, but I was thinking about going to college when I was 10. Yeah. Um, in 1977. And so to have graduated and to have a diploma that's like, there it is, University of Washington. It's not like you're ever going, it's not like you have needed it, right? I'm 49 years old and I have never needed it. And I feel like opening it and looking at it and having accomplished it, like all those times in my life when I, when having it would have, like when my dad was alive, if I had been able to, to show it to him and say like, I graduated from the University of Washington, mm-hmm. it would have meant something to him. Um, it would have meant something to my uncles. But now I just, I, I'm afraid of feeling underwhelmed. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I'm afraid of it being like, yeah, you, yeah, there it was. You always knew you could. Yeah, is that all there is? Yeah. Is there any chance uh, it could be the opposite of a diploma? Is there any part of your mind that worries that it's a big piece of paper that says your window is closed? Or do you have something tells you that it's a diploma apart from the shape? Well, yeah, because, because, at, because that fall, my, um, the director of the Comparative History of Ideas Department John Taves, who uh, took over in that role after Jim Klaus died, although John Taves was always Jim Klaus's advisor. Jim Klaus, is that the guy you were going to go start a civilization with? Weren't you That's guys right. Gonna, 
Yeah, <laughs> that's right. And Jim Klaus died suddenly. And John Taves, who had been his mentor, decided that rather than let the CHID department either dissolve or fall into the hands of a young, unexperienced or inexperienced professor, John Taves was like, okay, all right, I'll be the shepherd and guide. Wow. He's a pro- he was a prominent Hegelian John Taves. And um, and that fit in with, you know, what Chid did. And John was a friend and a mentor to me. And he called me and said, I'm retiring from the university. And when I go, I'm the last living link to anyone who ever taught you or like, like actually saw you as a living person rather than as a a ghostly chimera that hovers over the chid department. Like, you know, like I'm a, I'm a griffin, right? Like just Uh some winged lion. And he said, if I retire, all these little uh, weird addenda that are attached to all the pieces of paper in your file, all the post-it notes that say, well, this looks like that, but in actuality it's this because he did that, and then this. See, somebody promised him this, and and you know, and there's like dog tags in there, and there's like a lock of somebody's hair, you know, like my file. But you, do you feel like he was spinning it as like now, this, this is this is the time. This yeah. is the thing you need to do now. Oh, he wasn't spinning it. He said it directly. Like Let's do if this. you don't if you don't graduate now, it's going to be hard later. To find anybody who's going to believe it. And you just need to, like, you've had enough credits to graduate since 2001. (laughs) You've been putting it off for whatever thousand reasons. Um, You know, Jim Klaus, like, I went to see him in the hospital and he said, don't, don't not graduate because it's not perfect. Like, don't fail to graduate because you think that you need it all to be perfect. Just do it. Just hand in your shit and get out. Mm-hmm. And I said, you know, and he's like, you know, he's in the hospital on his way. And I said, mm. Jim, I can't, you know, I can't do that. And he said, <laughs> I am telling you, I'm telling you. You understand how parts of college work, but yeah. there are some parts you understand and there are other parts you don't seem to have fully grasped yet that the idea is to be done with college. Yeah, you need to get out. You need to not, like, that perfect. Must drive, that must drive these poor people crazy. It must it seem so did, strange to them. It did, it did, it did. It drove them crazy. They were like, for all the effort that you've put into this, you could have four graduate degrees. Why are you still here? And I was like, it's this, you know, I just have this one other thing I wanted to... <laughs> Got to refill and, your water. And can Klaus was like, you want me to, to pump your bed up a little bit? He's like, <laughs> I mean, this guy's, this guy's, you're saying he's in the hospital. Like he's, he's like, this is my deathbed command to you. Oh, Jesus. And I said, you know, I, I haven't my, read a lot of talking, but I think you're not supposed to refuse that. I think if, if you get a deathbed command from somebody who used to, to instruct you, I think you're, you're expected to follow it. Well, the thing is you, I think you're, if you say yes, sir, and then defy the the promise then you oh, yes you're cursed I, you know what you're probably right but i sat there in the chair and argued i, I never agreed to this yeah what are I you talking about to, i never agreed to graduate from your college i'm gonna stay here until it's perfect <laughs> so taves 
Taves had me come down to the college and, you know, there's like a, on the chid department wall, there's a long winter's poster. You know, it's like I am a chimera or I am like a, a, um, a, a race, a race. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you might maybe haunt a grandfather clock or something. <laughs> <laughs> Bong. <laughs> but I went down and I, uh, sat there and we all laughed and, and, uh, we had, a, we had some fun. We had, you know, we had some laughs and, <clears throat> and my memory is hazy, but, but I feel very certain because there was all this, there's all this stuff that needed to happen. Right. I mean, I was like, well, I wanted, I wanted to hand in that I had that thing about marks that I was working on and I just wanted to like make some modifications to it. All this stuff, you know, that I had that I needed to do before I would. And I think in, as I was sitting there describing it, like he put, he kept putting papers in front of me and he had me sign something that I think eventually produced this envelope arriving in the mail. Oh, you got a little bit gaslighted. I got a little bit. You didn't even realize you were graduating. That's not fair. Well, and so, and then, so I got a Facebook message from someone at the university one time that said, congratulations. That someone in the CHID department, Hmm. Facebook message. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't even a message. It was like posted on my page. Mm, On your wall. Yeah. And I Mm -hmm. wrote and I, and I commented and I was like, for what? And they commented back, oh, never mind. You'll see. <laughs> and so that's all That's all the evidence I have. But when that envelope arrived, I, like, it had a kind of, you know, it had little, it had icicles on it. Like, it felt like, whoa, what is, so I knew, I, I knew A, not to open it. I knew B, not to throw it away. So I, so it's, it's on the, it's on the bookshelf. Can you frame it in the envelope? Well, maybe that's a good idea. I like that. I like that. And you know, in your uh, in your papers, right? You leave leave behind some instructions about what's to be done in the unlikely event of your death. I mean, obviously, you'll never die, but if you do, here's what you're allowed to do with the framed envelope. Right. I do like, not open. I got to tell you, buddy. I like this idea a lot. Frame the envelope. I'm worried that framing the envelope is a weird affectation. Like mm. I, I I worry already that not opening it is weird. Yeah. But I feel like framing it, it, it that feels right to do, mm. but it also feels like nah, you're, yeah. now you're hanging stuff on the walls in your house that you're hoping people you're ask right. about. That, that would be weird to hang the envelope. You should just leave your diploma unopened. <laughs> <laughs>